0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is of course produced by policyforum.net and we're based at Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. You can Find out all about our amazing range of degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Listeners, welcome to our final episode for 2020 and what a year it has been. Take a deep breath, relax your shoulders, give yourself a metaphorical pat on the back, high-five the person closest to you. You have made it. You are almost across the finishing line. And while 2020 has been a pretty awful year, if you look, there are some signs that 2021 might be a bit better. Trump is slowly but surely leaving the White House. Science is making huge breakthroughs with vaccines. All the signs are that the world is about to start taking climate change more seriously. They've made managed to make chicken nuggets that are grown in a lab without any chickens being killed. I mean, all up, it's been a good couple of weeks for science, I think. And gloriously for me, Crystal Palace are 11th in the table uh, for now, at least. And over the last few weeks on Policy Forum Pod, we've also been hearing some good news. The Wellbeing Economy series, which has been brilliantly hosted by Sharon and Anna Greta, who are both here with me in the studio, has heard from experts and academics from all around the world and from a variety of uh, academic disciplines and backgrounds. And what we've heard from all of them are positive suggestions for change on how we can rethink our economies so that they're fairer, they're more supportive, they're more caring, and they're focused on human well-being. I have absolutely loved the series and I hope you have too. And as this is the last pod of the year, we thought we'd give Arna Greta and Sharon a day off hosting duties, and instead get them to reflect a bit on what we've heard so far. You know, so what are the common themes that have come up? What do we need to do to turn those into action? And how can we turn the idea of a well-being economy into a reality? And In addition to Ana Greta and Sharon, we've also invited along our absolute favourite sociologist slash poet, John Fowsen to join the fun. Hello, John. Hello, Martin. And hello, Ana Greta. Hi, Martin. And hello, Sharon. Hi, Martin. So let's get the formal introductions out of the way for those of you who uh, might not might not have been listening to date. Anna Greta Hunter is a physician and a cardiologist and a staff specialist at the ANU Medical School. She's also the ANU Human <laughs> Futures Fellow. Sharon Bessel is a professor here at Crawford School and the director of the Gender Equity and Diversity uh, Committee and heads the Children's Policy Centre. Sharon also leads the Individual Measure of Multidimensional Poverty Program. And Dr. John Fousen, of course, is a senior fellow in inequality and social justice at Per Capita, and he was previously the national CEO of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. So, welcome to you all to the podcast. It's great to have you all here. I'm a Sharon. It has been seven weeks now since you took the reins on Policy Forum Pod, and I've greatly enjoyed kicking back for a while and listening to your fantastic discussions. Throughout the series, you've covered an enormous amount of ground, from the universal basic income to using economics to solve climate change. To kick us off, can I get you both to reflect on what some of the main lessons you've drawn from the series so far are?
2: So maybe I'll lead off, Martin, and then hand to Anna Greta, and we might have a little bit of to and fro on this. But for me, the the research that, that I've done over the past 20 years has really been around how we think differently about people who have not won out in the current dominant economic system. So that research started with, um, with child labourers or working children in Indonesia um, back in the 1990s. And since then, I've worked with you know, a, a range of people, adults and children, who experience poverty every day of their lives, who are faced with inequality and, with, and faced with enormous structural barriers. And I guess underpinning my work has been this idea that has always felt as though it's just beyond our grasp. That ultimately what we need to do is to treat people with dignity, that we need to value people for who they are and what they contribute, whatever that is, and that we need to have an ethic of care um, in our societies and that that ethic of care is that what should shape us, not the pursuit of economic growth, not the pursuit of greater or more consumer goods, not necessarily the pursuit of, of infrastructure or development, unless it's for a reason. And that reason should be around creating societies that care for people and that value people. And I guess over the years, alongside that, for me, has become the importance of caring for the planet in the same way. And as I say, that idea often feels um, a little utopian, a little out of reach. But I think what we've done over the past seven weeks is to demonstrate how robust these ideas are, that these ideas are grounded in evidence, and that these ideas give us a different pathway forward, a pathway that is sustainable, that will move us away from the kind of consumptogenic society that we live in, as as Sharon Friel would describe it, um, and a pathway towards societies that genuinely value human life, that genuinely appreciate and value dignity, and that are shaped by this ethic of care. And along the way, are also able to care for, for our planet and give us a real future. So to me, this has been extraordinarily exciting over the past seven weeks to hear thought leaders, which is an overused term, but I think we really have had thought leaders in this series, talking about the way we can do this. So we haven't been focusing so much on the problems, or at least not dwelling on the problems, but we've been thinking about pathways forward. Um, and to me, that's been incredibly exciting. How can we genuinely care?
1: An Ethic of care. I think that's a beautiful idea. What about you, Hannah Greta? What are your reflections? What are some of the main lessons you've drawn from the series so far?
3: I think Sharon's done a fabulous job of summarising really some of the narrative behind what, the reasons why we've done this series and what we've learned from it. I think it was extraordinary to me uh, how many of how many of the speakers that we, the how many of the people we spoke to came back to the ideas of caring and the way in which we structure our society? And perhaps if I reflect on work um, outside the studio as a as working as a physician as a as a cardiologist, that we do spend a lot of time in the healthcare system patching up problems as they arise. And yet it's apparent from research and from experience that so much of the the ill health and the misadventure that occurs to people in their lives are preventable through different social policies. And so you know we've gone through the economic structures with John Quiggin, and that was a fabulous conversation about what our neoliberal economic structure is and and uh, why it's evolved. Um, but then I think the conversations we've had about solutions have been absolutely fascinating. And I, I learned a lot from talking about environment and climate change through the model of economics, thinking about poverty and justice through the model of economics, thinking about healthcare through the model of economics. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been an extraordinary journey.
1: John, we are delighted to have you here for this podcast because a podcast that we did with you was really the inspiration for doing this series on the wellbeing economy. So it's, it's great to actually get you involved in this. But what are your reflections on what Sharon and Anna Gritter have talked about? Oh, they've both they've both spoken so beautifully.
4: Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult when you're in furious agreement uh, with your interlocutors um, but um, if you would indulge me for a moment, I'd like to introduce um, the um, the work of uh, a theorist that uh, I'm I'm uh, deeply admiring of uh, Judith Butler. Um, now, Judith Butler, um, I'm indebted to my daughter uh, for introducing me to Judith Butler uh, when she first was introduced to her work uh, doing gender studies here at the ANU, uh, and um, Judith Butler. Um, uh, introduces a couple of terms uh, and defines them that I think are enormously pertinent to uh, what what um, Anna Greta and Sharon have just been alluding to. She speaks about the the notion of precariousness and she says that precariousness is simply the fact that one's life is always in the hands of the other. Quite a beautiful concept, the the notion that we are human, we are social beings, we need each other. Everyone needs help from everyone else. But then she speaks about precarity, and she makes, makes a huge distinction here. And she says, precarity is a politically induced condition in which certain populations suffer from failing social and economic networks of support. And become differentially exposed to injury, violence and death. I, and I think, you know, that fits in really well with what you've both been speaking about. And that's what I'm an enormously interested in. Uh, I'm driven by, in fact, um, two things. One, that we've got to reclaim that sense of the precariousness of life and celebrate it because it's a beautiful thing that we need each other and that we can be there for each other. It should not be stigmatised. It is not a weakness. And secondly... Precarity is completely preventable. In fact, precarity is deliberately manufactured. And this is the stake that's driven in into the heart of the community. This is why certain as Butler says, you know, differentially exposing certain populations. And we know from all of the all of those elements that cause uh, insecurity, poverty, inequality, they are all forms of that manufactured. Deliberately manufactured precarity. So I, I believe that it's right at the heart of the challenges that face us, and that in some ways COVID has shone a light on, hopefully to our benefit, hopefully so that we can reevaluate and prioritise the sense of the social. The fact that public institutions have been central to our survival. And secondly, our sense of valuing each other, valuing workers. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, all the talk was about how important, how heroic our essential workers are. And yet, We're we're sitting here during a a parliamentary sitting week uh, during which uh, legislation is going to be introduced that is going to make work more insecure. At the same time, we've got a social security system that delivers uh, social insecurity Uh, and you know the 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 much needed uh, COVID supplement. Uh, you know that that came at the beginning of the of the uh, of the pandemic uh, has been whittled away to almost nothing. And and I just want to leave you with some very telling words from the Prime Minister when he was announcing the last reduction to the to the uh, to the to the COVID supplement for people on Job Seeker. So now people are down to fifty living on fifty one dollars a day, and he said. Is something very interesting. He said, government can't allow the lifeline, this lifeline to hold Australia back as we move to the next phases of recovery. So you see the framing there that to help is something that holds the economy and holds individuals back. Nothing could be further from the
1: reality of being human and being a member of society. I think that's beautifully put there, John, and you touched on a number of the sort of common themes that have come up uh, across these podcasts, particularly around the idea of precarity. Guy Guy Standing talked about that um, uh, in a a terrific interview, and I do want to drill down a little more into some of these common themes that we've heard across these podcasts undergrad one of the striking things that i've heard having been in the room and listening to your conversations over the recent weeks is just how unanimous the guests have been in calling for a sort of public policy reset in the wake of the pandemic what does that say about our pre-pandemic economic model
3: well I think the reason we have are talking about these issues now is because we may have reached the limits of the neoliberal model. I think it's particularly apparent through the sequential crises that we've faced in 2020 uh, the climate change crisis that's unfolded over Australia and particularly in two thousand and nineteen with drought and bushfires, and a real sense that we need to address that crisis. Addressing and valuing the environment in the way that we should doesn't seem to fit easily in this neoliberal model. And so there's a tremendous need, I think, if we're looking to really genuinely address the challenge of climate change to rethink at its core our economic system. But coronavirus has also exposed some of the flaws in the neoliberal system, and John's just done a superb job, I think, of enunciating some of those challenges, particularly around work and around precarity and around the vulnerable elements of communities around the globe. And so I think it's been this sequence of catastrophes that's really highlighted that the model that's been in use for a hundred or so years and potentially longer. I'm reflecting on John Quiggins' Quiggins great uh, opening part of our podcast, telling us about the the structure of economics and the tools that we have in our basket at the moment. And I I think what we've really seen through the conversations over the last couple of weeks is that that's no longer fit for purpose. That doesn't address the issues that are forefront in many of our minds at the moment. And that most definitely does not give us the best possible human future.
1: Sharon, one of the other common themes that's come out of the podcast series is the interconnectedness of so many issues, whether that's economics or health or climate change, and the dramatic events of this year have shown us that we can't deal with these events in isolation, but so often they're framed as trade-offs. How can we move beyond that?
2: I think it depends how we talk about trade-offs. I think the, the example that John gave of the Prime Minister um, talking about the fact that we can't allow a lifeline to people who are really struggling at the moment um, hold the country back, I mean, that to me is a, a completely bizarre trade-off and a completely artificial trade-off. You know, a country cannot advance if a good proportion of the population are living in poverty, if people who need support are not able to put food on the table for their children, or if people need to make a choice, a trade off, if you like, between food and shelter, you no, know, or paying for their children's education and paying for their own clothing, you know, I mean, that is not the kind of society that anyone can present as a just, a fair or a reasonable society or the kind of society that is fit for human beings. And so when we start to talk about those kinds of trade-offs, if we let some people suffer in order for the country to move forward, I think that is such an artificial argument because it's, it's presenting um, as some kind of trade-off, something that we shouldn't even think about in those terms. I do think that there are tensions and if we want to use the language of tensions or of trade-offs, I think you know that's that's the language that one chooses. But I do think there are points at which one course of action that will benefit some will not benefit others, and. I think we need to recognise that. In the conversation that we had um, with Tim Hollow and Mark Howden, we were talking a little bit then about gender issues and gender equality and how we think about um, less consumption and fewer consumer goods in ways that don't actually undermine the kinds of labour-saving devices that help to um, make women's burden lighter and progress gender equality. Now, I'm not sure it's helpful to call that a trade-off, but I do think there are some issues where we see tensions. And if there's one thing that I think has come out of these conversations over the past seven weeks is the need for us to actually acknowledge where there are tensions – And to think about how we address them and how we address them in ways that hold on to first principles. And to me, those first principles are around valuing human beings, valuing dignity, valuing people's lives and livelihoods, and valuing the environment that we live in. Where there are tensions, I think we need to name it. And we had a a conversation last week where Carolyn Hendricks and Millie Rooney talked about the art of listening. And I think this is fundamentally important that we need to listen to one another. We need to listen to what the problems are, to listen to where there may be perceived trade-offs and think seriously and deeply about how we can resolve them. I think if we pretend there are no tensions, if we pretend there are no trade-offs, we're not going to come to a solution. But if we engage in the art of listening and if we engage in valuing respect and dignity Of what for one another, then we will be able to find solutions. But I don't think pretending there are no trade offs is the way to do that. You know, some people will need to change their lifestyles in ways that they don't particularly like. And I don't think there's any way around that. But it's about having the conversation so that we can move forward together rather than pretending that no tensions exist and thinking about what the principles are that we start to base those conversations on.
1: That whole thing with the art of listening is is really interesting to me, and especially how we uh, relearn the art of listening in a world where we're all on social media and everyone's very shouty and everyone's in their silos and very opinionated. There was a tweet that I shared last night as we're recording this, which was an exchange of letters between Ian Dunn, who has recently been a guest on the Democracy Sausage podcast and is an ardent Remainer in the UK, uh, and uh, his opposite number, who was a firm Brexiter. And it was a really interesting exchange of letters because they went into it on the basis that they would be civil and polite to each other. They would set forth each other's views and they would have a series of letters six letters where they would discuss and identify what the differences but crucially try and find some common ground um and it was a, a quite beautiful exchange particularly in this sort of February world of social media to to read this and it was very interesting that these two people who came from wildly different political standpoints we're actually able to agree at the end of the day on one thing, which was the damage that has been done to society by laissez-faire economics. So it's very, nice. it's it's interesting that you talk about that, and it's uh, I think the more of those types of conversations where we can try and find a bit of common ground as a starting point for dealing with some of those tensions and trade-offs is a is a good way to go. Now, John, I want to return to this idea of. Precarity and uh, and the precariat. Um, You quite rightly pointed out that the events of this year have not affected everyone in the same way, and that some people have continued to get the short end of the stick. In the Guardian back in May, you wrote, "Some of us are in more danger than others, physically, mentally, socially, economically, not only from the virus itself, but from some of the social and political responses." To her. As I said a few weeks ago, Sharon and Anna Greta spoke to Guy Standing, who literally wrote the book on the precariat. And in recent weeks, we've seen distressing news about delivery drivers who have been an absolutely essential part of this year being killed on the job. So how do we ensure that those frontline workers, not just delivery drivers, but also nurses and teachers and cleaners and so many more people who are genuinely essential to the way that the economy works are supported by policy not just for the pandemic but forever
4: well it goes back to your points about listening you know the the long-term solution uh, is not throwing a few crumbs the long-term the only sustainable solution is by introducing a greater degree of democracy into the economy something quite unheard of, Uh, you know, when you think about it. uh, We've got a very strong idea of what our political democracy consists of, that one person gets one vote. And we would find abhorrent the idea that the wealthier you are, the more votes you get. And yet every day, not just on election days, every day, Uh, as when it comes to decisions about the economy, including decisions that have huge personal impact on us as workers and as consumers and as members of a society impacted in every which way by economic decisions. Every day, those decisions are made in such a way that, uh, the, that those who are the majority owners of capital have all the votes. And that's not sustainable. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. Uh, That's why uh, we need a a broadening of democracy so that we can have a sense of self-determination over such issues as how we address the climate emergency rather than leaving it in the hands of those who control uh the 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 bulk of global capital uh you know it's interesting uh, the early conversation about trade-offs you know the trade-offs we're usually presented with are completely false choices so you know the the classic one of course is um you know you've got a choice between precarity in the in the workplace increasingly insecure work at lower and lower pay and keep in mind that uh you know the 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 labor share of income is declining in relation to profits uh so you know that's your first choice precarity in the workplace or even worse precarity uh, outside uh, the workplace uh, you know, you don't want to be in a social insecurity system where precarity is going to bite you really hard. Now, this is, of course, a false choice. You know, where is the choice to have uh, the kind of society that ensures that everyone is able to help everyone else uh, and that whether you are in work or not in paid work, you are valued and respected and uh, that that you are safe. You know, it's not just about safe workplaces, it's about a safe society. And you can only make society safe when prosperity is shared instead of hoarded. We saw at the beginning of the pandemic what hoarding, <laughs> how obscene hoarding was. Well, that's our reality. That's, that's not just a pandemic uh, weirdness. That's every day, that kind of hoarding of prosperity rather than sharing. But, but even worse, in a sense, I believe, is the hoarding of power um because <clears throat> we know that there the, there is nothing as demeaning and degrading as when you are completely disempowered and of course, that's what happens, uh, you know, to a great degree, sadly, in our social security system with paternalistic and infantilizing measures such as the cashless debit card, uh, which is, is currently going to the Senate having passed the lower house by one vote. Uh, you know, much, much to our shame as a nation that this is, this is existing, let alone being rolled out further um you know when people are treated this way uh, they are disempowered when we are disempowered uh, we lose heart uh, and we lose our sense of self when a community is disempowered uh, you know we are completely without control over our future over our planet you know and that's the uh, that's the other false choice of course you know planet versus the economy you know what a nonsense what a nonsense the economy you know you think economy etymologically uh, you know comes from the ancient greek for uh, how we look after how we organize our home the economy is not profits the economy is us it's our everyday personal struggles it's our desire to to have safety to have well-being to look after those we love, to look after each other. And, of course, that means looking after our home, this planet.
2: Martin, can I add to that? I think we we often think about, you know, the the massive challenge ahead in terms of changing structures, changing an economic system that has been dominant for many decades, probably many centuries, of changing political systems. But I'm listening to John and I'm thinking... The starting point needs to be for each of us to think not about what we want for ourselves, but to think of the person we love most in the world, the person that means most to us and how we would want that person to be treated if their lives were in the hands of others. If they were in not just a situation of precariousness, but, you know, bordering on that precarity that you talk about, John. How would we want that person we love to be treated? And to take that starting point to think about how we build the kinds of political and economic and social systems that we want to shape our society. And I think if we could begin from that starting point, which is a rather radical idea, it's leaving aside profits and GDP and you know what happens at the macro level. I think if we could begin at that starting point, we would start to see very very different decisions made and a very different idea of what trade-offs really
3: are. I think Millie Rooney gave us some of that framework. In fact, when she talked about confidence and if we can create a society in which people can have confidence that they will be cared for, so whether that is themselves or any member of their family. And I think that you know, you're on a seesaw for change, and at one end of the seesaw is anger and 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 you know people rising up, um, often with with quite destructive uh, consequences, and at the other end is the possibility possi- possibility of collaborative change and hope. Uh, for really radical transformation in a peaceful manner. And, and I think it's that confidence, giving, giving our communities confidence that they will be cared for, that they can have a digni- dignified life, that will help us to, to really uh, encourage that, that transformational change which is peaceful.
1: This is a fascinating conversation. It's given me plenty to think about. And I'm sure it's given our listeners plenty to think about. So how about we take a quick break there, give them a chance to mull over what we've talked about. And when we come back, we'll have a look at what the kind of future looks like for the idea of a well-being economy.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
1: Welcome back, we're still here with John, Sharon and Anna Greta. Now we've talked about the common challenges that we've seen and heard about from this really diverse group of academics and experts that have appeared on the podcast and it's genuinely interesting to hear the common ideas that have been expressed regardless of you know their academic discipline or their expertise or their background but i wonder if there are still areas for exploration there are still things that um, we, we need to look at we need to look at and we need to think about when we're talking about the well-being economy so, Ana Greta, what haven't we heard about so far or what have you heard that has made you think, oh, this is an area we need to explore further as we build our understanding of what a well-being economy really looks like?
3: Martin, I've learned so much through the last couple of uh, weeks and months uh, having these conversations with such an extraordinary range of guests. And what I've found is that these concepts of economic change are now infusing through all sorts of conversations and thoughts that I have in in the other work and the other areas that I do, and so I, you know, I feel like we could extend this series indefinitely. That economic transition is a core part of the solutions to a better human future. Uh, That I think if we're going to really address the climate change challenge that we need to think about how to restructure our economic systems, and we could probably talk about that for a lot longer uh, with a variety of different perspectives. I think it's interesting to think about leadership and we got got uh, some significant insight into leadership and, and how to achieve change talking with Carolyn Hendricks and with Millie Rooney. Um, and I think we could continue that conversation for quite some time, uh, including speaking to leaders from around the world who've managed to see change achieved in their communities. So I think there's a this, this series could probably go on indefinitely.
1: There was some wonderful stuff in that podcast with uh, Carol and Millie about local leadership and and sort of driving it at a grassroots level. But what about you, Sharon, on that question? What What do you think we haven't heard about? What are uh, our further topics for exploration here?
2: I think the the topic that I would like to see us explore, and maybe we can put this on our agenda for next year is the place of the education system in our societies. Every child is required to go to school, to go to formal education, and it takes up an enormous amount of children's time. Um, And I do think that teachers do an incredible job and are incredibly underpaid and undervalued in our society. But I think we need to rethink what education is for. You know, so often, education is seen as creating the future workers of our society, creating the future consumers of our society, or just holding children until they somehow miraculously. You become good workers and good citizens.
1: Job-ready
2: graduates. Job-ready ready <laughs> graduates. We have heard that term of late. I think we need to look at our education system and think, how do we reshape it so that every child, from the point that they start their education to the point that they leave formal education is engaged and excited and genuinely learning how do we foster creativity
3: so we can talk about education and we can talk about the arts and we can talk yeah. about the role of gender all of those things but i think education is so fundamentally important absolutely
1: so i want to just stay with that idea of sort of localism and grassroots and you know what it means to be part of a community John, in a recent article that you wrote for the Canberra Times, terrific piece, you talk about an imaginary village, and it's a space where people and democracy thrive together. Can you paint us a picture of that imaginary village? And what what kind of hurdles we need to overcome in the future to get there
4: well the the imaginary village i i cited in that piece you know didn't come to a very happy end uh, martin <clears throat> what i was uh, you know it was a, a bit of a thought experiment to imagine a village where uh, you know the the community does provide for the essentials of life uh, that housing and education and health and clean water are are taken care of uh, collectively by the village that people have a sense of um, of self determination and control over their lives, uh, but in the in the uh, uh, in the centre of the village, alongside the the um, space for um, deliberative uh, democracy, if you if you like, you know, where people debate, you know, what what are the priorities, where do we find the common ground? Alongside that is a marketplace. And it's a lovely place too, full of colour and verve and diversity and and a a great space in which many of our needs are provided for as well. Uh, And what I said was, well, imagine though, you know, that's all very nice, but imagine if that marketplace kept growing and growing, so much so that it completely took over the village, that it took over that space for democracy and it took over – everything, all of those things that the village formerly was able to provide for itself, for its own people, the education, the water, the health, the housing, that everything became part of the marketplace. Even culture became part of the marketplace. In fact, it took over so much that there was no more village. There was only a marketplace. There was no more community, only marketplace. Now, the reason I painted that rather dystopian uh, 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 picture was because, again, you know that's not dystopian. That's reality. That that is what is happening. That is the neoliberal trajectory. It's not an accident. It's deliberate. Uh, bit by bit, every corner of our lives is commodified. If there's no profit to be made, there is no value attributed. And that's why you have, uh, you know, workers devalued and people who are not in paid work, uh, completely devalued because there's no monetary value attached to their existence, which is an absolute obscenity. Um, this is the reality that every corner of our lives has become commodified. But in the process, uh, democracy has been overtaken by that marketplace and the, the values of the marketplace have taken precedence over the values of democracy, of people, people's um people's needs mattering, people's um people's ideas, people's insights, people's experience really mattering. It's the complete inverse to what we were saying before about the art of listening. Uh, what I am proposing is not the eradication of that marketplace. But the insistence that the marketplace is not everything, that we are more than the marketplace. Uh, that's what I believe that we we need to move move towards. Uh, that's the only way forward uh, if we want the kind of society uh, where people are valued. Uh, because if we if we do not, uh, what we end up with uh, is a system which Uh, devalue which attaches a monetary value to our lives and what that means is uh, the entrenchment of precarity rather than arresting it you know at the moment there is there is nothing to stop that translation of economic crisis into personal crisis that's what we saw during COVID, but pre-COVID we saw it too. People living in a permanent state of recession. You know, never mind the current recession; many people's lives were were in a permanent state of recession. Uh, you know, as as uh, as Sally McManus said recently uh, at, a, at a press club uh, at a press club speech uh, regarding insecure work, she said the growth of insecure work has not happened naturally. It has happened by design.
3: It's such a fabulous analogy. I love that tension between the marketplace and the village, and this fundamental idea that the marketplace has been constructed. You know, for me, this is one of the important messages from the whole series that we've done is that economics is a construct, it's a social construct, that we have a role to play in defining what we're hoping to get from an economic model. And we've defined consumptogenic growth or we've defined economic endpoints of GDP um, as the dominant focus. It doesn't have to be like that. And there's never been a better time for imagination Uh, to allow us to really reframe that narrative towards some of Millie Rooney's language of hope and love and caring for our society. Um, we, we, We can do that. We really can. And I'm thinking about, John, when you talk
2: about the ways in which the values of the marketplace have overtaken the values of democracy, which I think we see around us all the time. But then thinking about some of the very practical real world examples that Carolyn Hendricks talked about, where we've started to see in perhaps rather tentative but powerful ways, the values of community beginning to overtake the values of the market and reinstating democracy from the bottom up. And I think that's a source of great optimism and we need to hang on to that.
1: Well, we are drawing to the end of our discussion here, and I'm glad you mentioned optimism because I think that we should end on an optimistic note. Obviously, 2020 has been a bloody awful year. It's been one that will forever be marked with an asterisk for all the wrong reasons. And everyone listening to this podcast will have been They'll have faced personal challenges, some of them quite profound, some of them quite life-changing, but it's also been an awful year beyond the personal and into the political and societal issues around the globe. I wonder, though, whether Sharon and Ana Greta, what you've heard over the last six weeks, has given you any personal cause for optimism or even just brought you know a ray of positivity at the end of a very difficult year what about you sharon what what personal causes for optimism have you heard out of what we've talked about over the course of the series?
2: I think we've heard some really powerful ideas, but also really powerful suggestions and examples of how we put those ideas into practice. And to me, what's come out of this series is the way in which we we can think about justice, not charity – about sustainability, not consumption, about care, not profit. And we've heard people talk in very meaningful ways about how we can actually make those those transitions, how we can make those positive values real. And I think at at a personal level, one of the most important things and the most optimistic things to come out of this series, and something that I'm actually quite proud of, is that we're creating a space here to talk about care, to talk about connectedness, to talk about the importance of human relationships, to talk about our love for our, our environment and our place. And I think we have to create those spaces to talk seriously with power brokers about what really matters so that we're not constantly drawn back into a kind of laissez-faire economics or a neoliberal way of, of arguing our case, that we can actually say No. These are the values that matter and this is what we're going to talk about and this
3: is the world we want to create. Join us in doing it.
1: Very positive note indeed. What about you, Anna Greta?
3: Absolutely. That's a fantastic way to summarise the conversations we've had so far, Sharon. And I think maybe one of the other things to add in there is just to thank everybody who's listening to this podcast. I know you've had a hard year. Everyone's had a terrible year. And so if you've survived this year, congratulations, And thank you. Thank you for looking after yourself, looking after the world around you, looking after each other. Uh, And thank you for joining this conversation, because I think the hope to me is that we are having these conversations, that there are amazing ideas, ideas that make many of us feel happier in the world and may give us a sense of positivity and a sense of real hope when we're contending with risks and threats around us which can be catastrophic and existential. Uh, and so I, I think, actually think the time for change is coming very, very soon. I think this year has prepared us for uh, societal change and I think the conversation will only grow from here.
1: John, what are your reflections on this? What, what can you give us that will make us feel optimistic that 2021 is going to be much better than 2020 and we might start to – Heal some of these divides and put in place some of these wonderful uh, suggestions that that we've talked about. Oh,
4: There's no, nothing that I can give. Um, it's what it's what uh, the people you know. For me, what the the people who bear the brunt of inequality and precarity. It's what it's what they give um, because you know I always think to myself. Often people say to me, "Oh, you know, don't you don't you despair." Uh, you know, don't you feel a sense of despair? Don't you feel you're banging your head against a, a brick wall? Uh, you know, f- you, you've spent so many years calling for simple things like uh, an increase uh, to income support payments, uh, you know, uh, an increase to uh, to investing in public housing and, uh, you know, uh, b- better working conditions for people, uh, you know, an end to insecure work, all of those things. Uh, don't you feel, uh, you know, like giving up? hope because, um, you know, the battle is so hard and uh, the forces against those uh, good things are so many. And I I always think to myself, you know, uh, we have no right to indulge in the luxury of despair, Uh, not when uh, so many people have nothing but that tiniest nugget of hope, that that life can be better, that things can be different. We have no right to despair. And so I I, I never feel a sense of despair. Um, you know, frustration at times, sure. Uh, but that's part of the battle, you know. Uh, you know, it's a long, long struggle and we'll have many defeats. Uh, We've had many defeats, but, you know, you get knocked down and you get back up again. Uh, You know, you fail, you fail better, Uh, you know, like like Samuel Beckett uh, says. And so, you know, the the fact that we have been able to identify um, so many causes for unnecessary pain, such woundedness in society, has been, uh, has had a light shone upon it. Um, In some ways, um, this can be a very productive thing because, you know, you can't, you know, Paulo Freire says, you know, you you can't uh, engage in a prophetic annunciation of the good news if you don't engage in a prophetic annunciation, a denunciation of the bad news. And so, you know, uh, let me let me conclude with you know the 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 words of the the poet Pablo Neruda come to mind. You know, he says, "Rise up with me against the organisation of misery," and that's the key thing here: that misery is in fact organised. Let us add to that. uh, Let us join together in the organisation of hope.
1: That sounds like a beautiful way to end the podcast. So thank you so much for your time, John, Arne Greta, and Sharon. What a fantastic discussion we've had today. And thank you, listeners, for listening to our season finale and to Policy Forum Pod throughout 2020. But before I let you go, I have a couple of announcements to make. In 2021, Policy Forum Pod will be back, but it'll be back with new hosts. Well, not new exactly, because Anna Greta and Sharon have agreed to take on the podcast permanently. Sharon and Ana I have loved listening to you over the past six weeks and all the feedback that we've had from our listeners suggests that they are also really enjoying having you host the pods as well. And I'm thrilled that you're going to be able to bring all of your enthusiasm to the pod as well as the considerable and deep expertise uh, that you have, which is quite a departure from me, as uh, you know. The subject matter that I'm most familiar with is the Crystal Palace teams of the 1990s. And while I, I, while I'm genuinely over the moon that I am handing the reins over to you, this is also a slightly bittersweet moment for me because after 13 years of working at the Australian National University, at the end of the month, I'll be finishing here and moving into a new role outside of the university. I'd like to say that it's been an absolute privilege to work on this podcast and to bring you these important conversations on public policy in Australia and the region. We've come a long way since we started this podcast five years ago, and personally, it has been an amazing opportunity to speak with some truly incredible people. Over the history of the series, there are naturally way too many people for me to thank, but I'd probably need a whole episode just to do that. But I do want to mention a few special people. Uh, first of all, of course, our hosts, Sharon and Anna Greta, uh, but also our other hosts, Sarah Bice, Sue Regan, Paul Verval, Kim Cunio, Maya Bandari, Cherry Zhang, Lydia Kim, Nikki Nikki Lovegrove, and Edwina Landale. I'd also like to say huge thanks to Quentin Grafton, who's been my editor-in-chief on Policy Forum and a constant source of support to me. To Helen Sullivan, to Nick Walsh, and Lisa Flanagan at Crawford School, who have been steadfast in their support of the podcast, to the amazing ANU media team, especially James Gigaher, and to Nick Farrelly, formerly of the ANU College of Asia Pacific, who have always supported us, and of course, all of our regular guests that have come on the podcast. But most importantly, I want to say thank you to you listener for listening, but also for contributing so much to the members of our policy forum pod Facebook group in particular. We really cherish this little community we've built and I will continue to be active with it even after I have left the ANU. We are so grateful for your willingness to share your ideas, your feedback and your enthusiasm for what we do. But look, that's enough from me. And as I am passing the baton to Sharon and Anna Greta, maybe I'll let the two of you wrap up the pod with any final thoughts you might have for our listeners.
2: I think we will say a couple of words about um, what we hope to do next year and how excited we are about um, stepping into the role of host and, and taking the pod forward. But before I do that, I I want to say that as we get towards the end of this year, 2020 just keeps getting worse. Martin, the fact that you are moving on is one of the, the terrible outcomes of this year. Um, at the ANU, like at so many universities across the country, we've lost very many wonderful colleagues because of the response to the pandemic and the undervaluing of what our educate our tertiary education system provides to this country. But at a at a personal note, um it is terrible to say goodbye to you. I think everyone that's listening would know that the pod was the brainchild of Martin and that it's been Martin's brilliant, energetic and committed leadership of the pod that has made each and every episode what it has been. And it's Martin's vision and talent that's turned an idea into something very, very real and something that we all value so greatly. And Martin, I think particularly the way in which you've built a community around this through our Facebook group has been quite extraordinary. I've been thinking back to March 2017, when I did my very first interview on the pod, and that was with you, Martin, when we interviewed then head of UNFPA, the late Babu Tunde, Oxford-Himmin. No, was it, was it was
1: a wonderful interview.
2: It was an amazing interview. My daughter said to me afterwards, I don't know why you were there, Martin, such a good interviewer. He didn't really need you. <laughs> 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 but I was hooked, so I stayed the course and I kept coming back. <laughs> and each episode has been such a learning experience, such a privilege and a whole lot of fun, despite the endless and painful discussions of Crystal Palace. So, Martin, it is with incredible sadness that we say farewell um, and wish you well as you go on to new opportunities and to new adventures. It will be impossible to replace you. Martin, as we all know, is a brilliantly talented podcaster, executive producer, interviewer, and also a caring, considerate, and yes, very often hilarious colleague to whom I owe a great deal, and to whom the Crawford School, the College of Asia and the Pacific, and the Australian National University owes, owes a great deal. The pod will always be a product of your genius, Martin. We will miss you. I will miss
1: you. That is beautiful. Thank you so much.
3: All I can say, really, is here. Here, it's been such a pleasure working with you, Martin, and we are going to miss you immeasurably. You have a superb curatorial ear. You're very good at bringing people together and getting the best out of them for conversations. And as a long-time listener, I I will miss hearing your voice on this podcast. So I think it's tremendously sad that we lose you at this point in time. Uh, but we hope to do this podcast justice in, in its continuation. And so thank you so much for your vote of confidence I think it's one of your many, many skills is that you take nervous academics and and give them space to speak uh, on on air with confidence that their views will be respected. And it's been an extraordinary journey. So thank you so much for your support. Um, And we really do wish you, you all the best with the next phase.
1: That is lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you to both of you. Beautiful words. I'm really touched. So maybe I'll close out the podcast by reminding listeners to do please reach out to us. We really value and love your feedback. And very soon I will be one of those listeners and I will be reaching out and I will be providing feedback. (laughs) Don't you worry about it. But genuinely, I am excited about where the two of you are going to take the podcast. I, I think you've been a tour de force over the last six weeks. And I know you've got lots of great ideas about what you're going to do in 2020. And I can't wait to hear what you are actually going to do. So listeners, do reach out to us. The Facebook group is the best way to do that. We are a little pod family on there. Just type in Policy Forum Pod in your search bar and hit join. Or you can find us on Twitter where we're apps policy forum. That's APPS policy forum. Or email us podcast at policyforum.net. But until the next time we speak, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio.